Oh, the subject of idolatry was a major breakthrough in my own life. And so this is far more than an academic subject that I'm excited about digging into. This is personal because this was life changing. I was saved at seven, grew up in the church, but this was life changing. For many others of you, you found the same thing to be true. As we counsel, we found it to be true. But here's the deal. Some of you still have never heard it. You're new to our church. But stay with me. Those of you that are like, oh, yeah, wow, a rehashing of this. Got it. Some of you heard it and forgot it. And some of you have heard it, but you never dug in and took the extra time by God's spirit to apply it to your own life. I am praying that this would be life-changing for hundreds of us that would say, God, help me understand me. Help me understand the heart that I'm bringing to every circumstance, every situation, every encounter with someone else. Let me give you a little more of my own testimony. You see, in my own life, more than 30 years ago now, it was an understanding of this concept of idols of the heart. It was a major breakthrough in the struggles that Vicky and I were facing in our marriage. And it all, in just the first two or three years, it all hit the fan. I mean, poof, wow, in our little mobile home. So you think you got trouble? Try having a bad marriage in a mobile home. There's just nowhere to run. It's like, you really need to work this out. It's not like I can exit and go to the den. There is no den. I can't go upstairs. There's not an upstairs. It's like, oh, this is awful. You, me, I say what I say. You say what you say. I say it louder. You cry. We repeat the whole thing in two or three days. God, help us. Actually, I wasn't saying God, help us. I'm like, God, help her to hear what I'm saying. I don't know how else to do this, girl. I'm a teacher. I have the gift of teaching. I'm bringing it to you. Get it. Oh. And she's thinking like, dude, get it. So, oh my goodness, this is so personal to me. Because, ha, we looked at each other. We looked at each other completely disillusioned. Thinking, is this as good as it gets? This is it? This is marriage? This is what I've waited for? This is the dream? This is what people talk about? Because this is pretty awful. We are both miserable, miserable. And I'll make a long story short, but the merciful breakthrough, and I would say it was merciful and painful. You realize pain and mercy can show up at the same time? Some of the best things that would ever happen to you are some of the most painful things. So if you really want this kind of help, don't expect, yes, this will be fun. Let's talk about idols of the heart. That sounds really fun. It's really good, and it could take you to a really new place you've never been before, but it's painful. Mercy and pain. The merciful breakthrough that we each experienced was through biblical counseling and a new, never-before understanding of why do I do what I do. Most of us are completely unaware of why we do what. Think about how often we talk this way. All I want. All I want is a husband who would. And what you finish that with sounds so, so acceptable. This isn't heinous. All I want is a husband who would. All I want is a wife who would. All I want are coworkers who, a supervisor who would, a nation that would, a church that would. All I want. Problem? We're completely unaware of why we want it and how badly we want it that we're willing to do anything to 
get it. The why beneath the what is the biggest problem as to why you stay so frustrated and why there's so much chaos and confusion surrounding you and people in your life. But we tend to always think it's them, it's them, it's them, it's them. And we never consider what kind of heart am I bringing to this moment? What is going on inside of me? But the Bible talks that way. And when the Bible goes here to help us with the why beneath the what, it talks about heart and idols of the heart. Hope you realize the Bible is not just a book of stop doing this and start doing more of this. Here we go. Here's a list of things to stop. Here's a list of things to do. You can find lists occasionally in the letters to the New Testament. But oh my goodness, the scope and sweep of the Bible is about heart. God's after our heart. We'll see it in Ezekiel 14 later in this series. He wants to seize his people by their heart. God cares about the heart because you guys, he understands real change happens on a heart level. If you just try harder to do certain things, it won't last long and you'll be right back to where you were if the heart doesn't change. Heart. And so when he talks about idols of the heart, he's talking about motives. Not what you do, but why. He's talking about effect, affections as to what you prize and treasure and worship most. Let me help you. I hope you realize Worship takes place outside of the context of this Sunday morning church family gathered singing songs. You're like, what? I worship every Sunday at 1045. Let me help you. You will worship your way into every encounter with every person this week, with every circumstance you face, with every event, with every incident, you have a heart that is worshiping something. Worship is simply what you prize, treasure, make much of, defend, promote every heart has an altar and there's something sitting on that altar and if you've determined this is what I've built my world around this is where I've placed my entire identity I must have this this is what I live for problem nobody says this out loud certainly not Christians but they're doing it left and right and the evidence of it is the chaos relationally around them and the frustration inside them Saying, what is wrong? What is wrong? God's not helping me. God's not helping me. Why isn't he changing her? Change him. Do this. Do that. See, what we learned in that counseling is that even though we were both Christians, you know, we tend to think, marry a Christian. And I'm, I'm all about that. Yes, please marry a Christian if you're a Christian. Here's what we don't realize. Could you still have problems? Oh, my word. More than I ever imagined. It's like... Even though we were both Christians, and I was a pastor on staff at a good Bible-teaching church, we had no idea why this was going so poorly. What in the world is going on? Even though we were both Christians, and we both had a Bible college education, you might think, we would know more about the Bible and be ready to have a marriage that would glorify God ahead of other people. Not necessarily. Even though we were both Christians, both had a Bible college education. You ready? We had both stepped right into a trap that God warns his people about. And it's not subtle either. It's not like tangential or peripheral, like this is just a thing on the side. When you hear the way God talks about it, it's almost like he's like, have you lost your mind? 
Are you insane? I'm watching you do this and it will never satisfy you. What are you thinking? This will not work. That's how God talks about this subject. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter two. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Jeremiah chapter two, beginning in verse 11. It's Old Testament. Your pages may be stuck together there because you've never been there before. (laughs) Unstick them and look at it. Jeremiah chapter two, beginning in verse 11. This is God speaking. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? Look at me. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, are you going to reach over here and grab something in this world, in this temporal finite world, and try to make it your God? Build your life around it? Place all your hope in that? Let that be your security and, and sense of purpose and pleasure? What are you thinking? Has a nation changed its gods for which are not gods. Now, who's, who's guilty of doing this? Look at the second half of verse 11. But who? Say it louder. My people. He's not talking about the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Philistines. My people. That's why God's like, what? But my people have exchanged their glory. He's calling himself their glory. He's talking about himself there. That's why the G is capitalized You realize as a human being, you're created in the image of God and for the glory of God. And so you will thrive. You will be most satisfied, feel most secure, have the most peace and joy and sense of purpose when you live for what you're... And don't hear me saying everybody needs to exit the marketplace and become a missionary or a pastor. Please don't. Keep being a carpenter. Keep being a pharmaceutical sales rep. Keep being a home manager, mom at home. Keep doing everything you're doing with an awareness of something bigger and greater that you've tapped into outside of this finite world, that you're doing it for the glory of God and you're not looking at any of this hoping it will fully satisfy you. It won't. You live for the glory of God And an awareness that only my relationship with him will satisfy me on the deepest level. Nothing else can do that. But my people have exchanged their glory for what does not profit. Notice he's saying, you invest in this. You put your hope here and it doesn't pan out. It won't profit. It'll fail you. It'll disappoint you. It'll leave you saying, what? Why isn't this working? Why isn't this working? For what does not profit... Now, it's like God just says to the creation around him, seraphim and cherubim, be astonished, O heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. That word desolate, you guys, means forsaken, devastated, deeply sad. What he is saying, you guys, is he's astonished that we so quickly do this And then we wonder, what's wrong? You will be devastated, you will stay frustrated, and you will be deeply sad that it's just not working out. And he's saying, it's not, it's not. This will not. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You realize you never just turn to something else in this world trying to get all your satisfaction there. In that moment, you sin in two ways. You are turning away from God. You're forsaking God who actually has living water 
and then you begin to dig. And you think if you dig hard enough, fast enough, with the right shovel, get others to join you in digging, I need you to dig too. That's what I sense politically right now. Do you realize politics can be an idol? And the reason there's so much anger and over-the-top rhetoric and like, what in the world? Is because people have placed their hope and it's become identity politics. That's not just the party I align with. That captures all of who I am. All my hopes, all my vision. Uh, uh Uh-oh, now there will be a war. There will be a war with other people because you're in my way. This is what I must have. Doesn't matter where you dig. If you say, oh, I always wanted children, and oh, this is going to fully, I'll feel loved for the first time. And while you nurse them, you do, like, oh, this is so precious. Guess what? Nursing babies grow up, and they do hurtful things. They say hurtful things. They make hurtful choices. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my goodness, I don't think, I, this isn't working out like, like I thought. Marriage, it's a good gift. But it was never meant to fully satisfy you because part of marriage exposes you. I wasn't looking to be exposed. I do. Please expose me and how awful I am. No, no. You're here to accent me. I'm the sun. You're Pluto. Orbit around me. And we'll continue to put on display how great I am. No one says that out loud. They just do it. Marriage was supposed to fully satisfy me. Kids. Work. Is work good? Yes. But if you place all your hopes there, I don't just do this, I am this. All my sense of worth comes from this. I must get approval. I must have affirmation. I must have it said, you're so great. And I want it, because I didn't get it from my dad, or I haven't gotten it from anyone, but I'm gonna make it happen here. I could go on and on and on. Good things that we try to turn into God things. And we're frustrated, frustrated. My people have forsaken. And here's what's so sad. He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to believers. So you can have a Christian logo t-shirt and ball cap on while you dig in the wrong place. And you're digging exactly where unbelievers dig and you're expecting it to satisfy you. He's like, my people, what are you thinking? Have forsaken me. You're not gonna be satisfied. This will not work out. And here's where it gets even more complicated. Because a lot of these broken cisterns are even good things like a friend. I just need a really good faithful friend. But we don't say out loud, I need someone to never let me down, to never disappoint me, to never fail me or go sideways on me. Are you ever going to find a friend like that? Louder. No, there's one friend that sticks closer than a brother. I would encourage you to get to know him. His name? Jesus, every other friend has faults, is a sinner, is like, and all of a sudden, if you're like, oh my goodness, I thought you, no, no. We put our hopes in good things, even like a friend, marriage, children, meaningful work, financial security, but these things were never, none of that is is sin in and of itself, unless you go there and place on it expectations and demands it was never designed to bear. It can't, it's broken. It's broke, children leak, right? When they're little, you know, that we wear diapers. They leak, but even as they get older, they still leak. It's broken, marriage, even a Christian marriage. I met Vicki at a Bible college, hello. She grew up in a good church. I grew up in a church, good church. We both believe the Bible. We both had fathers that made us mow with baseball cleats and goggles on. What could go wrong? This is so similar, like, wow, we were made for each other until we lived together in a mobile home. Like, 
Ah, not so much. It's like, what in the world? Marriage, work, image, health, you name it. Doesn't matter what you turn to. Nothing in this world was designed to fully satisfy you. But our problem is we just start digging faster, thinking, okay, or we think I haven't gotten enough of the right, or we start switching. I just need a different spouse. You know, I ran out and bought a book called The Incompatible Couple. I was just like, I guess I'm doomed to never be fulfilled because I can't do it with you. This is never going to work, ever. Come back in February, marriage conference. We'll talk some more about that. I was like, oh, nothing in this world was designed to fully satisfy you. And so let me encourage you. We will just be scratching the surface on this subject that I think is so life-changing. Just five messages is what we're going to do. So I want to I press for you to do things outside of these five Sundays. Let me encourage you, if you have the book Gospel Treason, dust it off, pull it off your shelf, and reread it. If you don't, get a copy. And I'm not saying this because the royalties will get me a jacuzzi tub in the office area. <laughs> Trust me, keep your day job. The author gets pennies. The publisher gets, you know, dollars a book. I'm pushing it because it changed my life. And there's so much more in the book. So this one message today is all about the introduction, chapter one and chapter two. Read and get more. Go to my website, bradbigney.com, and you can download a free study guide where you dig in some more, use it for your quiet time and say, God, I really wanna get this and apply it to me. Maybe meet with a friend for coffee and say, let's discuss these chapters together during these weeks. Do more outside of this room so that you could say, oh God, I really want you. I really want you to speak to me and help me through this. So let's dive in. What does idolatry look like and how do we get trapped in it? Number one, idolatry is a constant threat because we are so prone to gospel drift. Oh, I hope you realize, especially if you're young here today, your, your only concern as a Christian should not just be open outright, high-handed rebellion against God. I'm just gonna go off the rails in a high-handed way and rebel. A very small percentage of believers do that. You realize that? Do you know how we get destroyed? Do you know how we get trapped? Do you know how we end up places we never meant to be? Not outward rebellion, drift, drift, drift. Because our enemy knows us. He has strategies that are far more effective. He knows if he presents you with outright rebellion, you'll say, not gonna do that. God is good. But if it's gradual, if it's just simply drift, drift. That's why Hebrews chapter two, verse one says this, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. The things you've learned from the Bible, you gotta keep paying attention to it, lest we drift away from it. Lest you drift away from it. Drift away from it. And I love that word picture for right there. The Greek word that's used for drift is a nautical term regarding large ships. And it meant to unloose that big, huge rope that's wrapped around that metal thing on the dock. Initially, when you unloose the mooring of a ship, does anything tragic happen right away? No. It just keeps bobbing gently right next to the dock. Nobody's alarmed. Often, no one's even aware that they should be alarmed, and it takes some time. But over time, suddenly someone notices, oh my goodness, we're not where we should be. How did we get here? That's how some of you feel about your life right now. It was drift, my friends, drift, not rebellion, drift. 
Because I hope you realize you never just put your heart somewhere and say, now, I came to know Christ. I'm born again. I put my faith in Christ. There we go. Stay right there, heart, because I'm going to go after other things. Now I'm going to build my business. Now I'm going to raise some kids. Now I'm chasing after this. You will not come back to where you left your heart and find it there. You realize that? It drifts. You have to be intentionally, constantly, regularly giving attention to your heart where it is. You got to tell it where to go. You got to tell it. I hope this isn't news to some of you, but I bet it is. Our culture, and even Christians have bought into it, thinks you're never more authentic and you're never more likely to make a good decision than when you follow your heart. Just follow your heart. Just barf. (laughs) Barf all over that. Sit down and talk to people who are in the biggest messes. And how did they get there? I just did what my heart wanted and said. And I did about a dozen of those. And here I am. Your heart is not something to be trusted, my friends. The Bible doesn't teach that. Hallmark movies teach that. Oh, oh, follow your heart. The Bible says, tell your heart where to go. What does God's word say? Oh, my heart is saying, and I got to tell my heart, we're not doing that. We're going to do what God's word says. You got to push it. You got to place it. You got to give it attention. Where's my heart? Where's my heart? What am I wanting? What am I living for? What am I prizing and treasuring and making much of? What is on the altar of my heart? Because that determines what I'll say and do next. My behavior and what I want and why I do what I do with you, the why I respond the way I do to circumstances is all related to my heart. But we love to say, she just makes me so mad. She doesn't make you anything, my friend. She's an occasion that exposes your heart. Your heart. Your heart. Your heart. Because our heart is like, oh, it, it wants to make much of something. There'll never be a vacuum. You realize your, your heart will never be a vacuum. When you cease making much of God and you cease having him as number one, it's not like, oh, well, I'm not worshiping anymore. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We'll worship anything. Because the heart wants to make, see, Ecclesiastes tells us God has placed what in our hearts? Eternity. And so kids are finite, jobs finite, money, everything in this world is finite. It won't fill and it won't satisfy. And so you'll stay frustrated, but you'll try to worship and build your life around something else. This was Paul's great concern for the Christians in Corinth. Listen to how Paul talks in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you. That's a word that simply means engaged. I engaged you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. You realize if you're a Christian here, you're engaged to Jesus Christ. He's your bridegroom. He names you. He claims you. Someone loves you. Someone loves you deeply. Someone's thinking about you. Someone's coming back for you. Someone's preparing a place for you. If we would live now more aware of what's coming next, it would change how we respond to the people and circumstances we're facing. We've got too many Christians living for right now, completely unaware of what's coming next. If you're married, try to recall, do you remember what it's like to be engaged I assume you were like me. It's like, oh my goodness, I thought about that day. That day. That day, September 27th, 1986. I know, you're like, I wasn't born. It existed. (laughs) That day. 
that day, I mean, I mean, it changed things that I did. It changed my willingness to sacrifice. I was sitting on my balcony in my one-bedroom apartment with no shirt, nothing but gym shorts, because I was so hot. It's burning up in South Carolina. And I was saving money for the honeymoon. I would do whatever, because that day's coming. That day's coming. And my honeymoon was Gatlinburg. Yeah. And the Holiday Inn power went out, so they had no AC. So we walked the streets of Gatlinburg. Two nights in Gatlinburg. I mean, like, my kids, as they started to get married, they're like, oh, Dad, the parents pay for the honeymoon. No, they don't. No one, th- that's the new deal. Well, that's a really dumb new deal. Nobody paid for my honeymoon. You can pay for yours. I had Holiday Inn in Gatlinburg with no AC. I bet yours will be better. Have fun. It was like, oh, my goodness. I, I was like, oh, getting married. I'm getting married. I'm getting married. You guys, we're supposed to live that way. Constantly aware of. If you say, I just don't feel like anybody loves me or thinks about me. Hey, nobody in this world may do it as much as you wish. You've got a savior who thinks about you constantly, who loves you dearly, who's preparing a place for you, who's coming back for you. And that awareness of what's coming next should change what you do now, and how much you think you need from those around you now. Because look what he says next. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Oh, I know there's hard places in the Bible, and there's the book of Revelation, and there's stuff. But if your Christian life has become overly complex and you've lost sight, let me bring you back. Christianity is the only one of all the religions that is about a relationship. An intimate, amazing, real relationship with Jesus. It's not a creed. It's not a set of boxes you adhere to and you check boxes. Every other religion is like that. We have a person at the center of it, Jesus Christ, who loves you, knows you, is coming back for you, and that just changes how you live. When when you know him, And you love him, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Do you still love him? Devoted to him? Know him? It shouldn't be that you're like, oh, yeah. I remember when I first got saved. It was so real. I loved him so much. But, of course, I don't expect that to still be that way. Let me help you. It absolutely needs to stay that way or you won't respond well in life. You'll make bad choices. You'll begin to grab other things and try to fill the void. By God's grace, I'm glad. I don't say today, oh my goodness, man, I loved Vicky. And I thought, she's the one, I so want her. And now today, 37 years later, it's like, okay, whatever. We don't expect it to stay like that. Hey, it's better. There is a seasoned, mature, settled, sweet level of intimacy and love that is so far ahead of my puppy Love and feelings I had, it's better. Not like, oh, I wish I still had that. This is better. That's what it should be like in our relationship with Jesus. It's sweet. It's settled. There's a history of his faithfulness. I know him in ways that I didn't know him before when I first put my faith in him. Oh, you better have a simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Or you'll step right into this trap because your heart is longing and is thirsty for something that will fill it and satisfy it. Oh, we're so prone to idolatry because we're so guilty of drift. Have you drifted? You haven't rebelled. 
But if you just drifted to a place that's very different than where you started with Jesus, oh man, I would call you back. Listen to me, he's so good. He's so, I think about him all through the day. Yes, I start with a quiet time where I meet with him and then I just walk with him throughout the day. I didn't used to feel that way as a young Christian. It's so real and that makes it so much more that I can be able to say no to the things of this world. I can catch myself more quickly. My heart's saying, I'm like, oh, not in a million years. He's better. He's better. He's better. Don't go there. Number two, idolatry is alive and well, even though it's not talked about that often in Christian circles. It's more today, praise God. Praise God, it's better than when I first dug into this in 2005. There have been a few more books, but it's still not what it should be, you guys. Just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean the Bible's not talking about it. Oh, if you read your Bible, how much of it? From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you will see that idolatry is one of the biggest untapped themes in the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, not just Old Testament. You tend to think, oh, but that's all in the Old Testament. Different place, different time, different people, not us. Not true. And listen to me, if you live unaware, you know, with this untapped theme of idolatry, you will live unaware of your heart as much as you should be. And you'll just stay frustrated. What's going on? People keep failing me. What is going on? What is, I can't get what I want. What is going on? Don't live with this theme untapped in your life. I'll just get you to consider one little verse in the New Testament to prove my point. New Testament talks about this. Apostle, Apostle John, the apostle of love, who, who would have his head on Jesus' breast when he was here on the earth. Tight. After 105 verses in his little book of 1 John about the importance of a vital, warm, real, intimate relationship with Jesus, sticks the landing in chapter 5, verse 21 by saying this, little children, keep yourselves from, say it, idols. Oh man, watch out, be vigilant, stay aware, stay alert. In other words, he's bringing back to mind, he's asking the most important question, most basic of all questions. Don't let something else take the title deed of your heart. Has something else or someone else taken the title deed of your heart? That's really who owns me. That's really what moves me. That's really what motivates me. If you were to use this sentence, oh, that's what I live for. Oof. You shouldn't be talking about anything but Jesus. It's fine to say, oh, I love my kids dearly. Oh, I love, I enjoy my job. Or, uh, but what I live for should be one thing. One thing, Christ. Christ. For me to live as Christ, what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live as Christ is Christ. And when it becomes something else, for me to live as my kids, for me to live as to get my marriage exactly how I want it, for me to live as to get affirmation at work, for me to live as to keep that image that I have, disaster awaits you. If you step into that. And I hope you realize long before we change our lip theology, we can keep on saying the right things while our life is living something that contradicts what you're saying. You realize that? We're guilty of that constantly, especially if you've been in a good church and you know the right answer, the party line. You can say all day long with your lips, oh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of my life. You can say that with your lips, but if your choices and thoughts are dominated 
by winning the approval of your spouse or moving up the corporate ladder or landing the job of your dreams or finally getting that wedding ring on your finger or having the perfect family or retiring early as a millionaire at 40. If that's what you actually live for, this is what drives me and motivates me, then let me help you. That is actually your functional God. You can say Jesus is Lord, but you can be living as a functional atheist. I actually have made something else. I will be. Hey, is money a sin? No. The love, and you've decided, being debt free, is that a good thing? But could you live in such a way that you've made it a God thing? I will drag my wife. She can't get a haircut. She can't buy a candle in the fall for the coffee table. We're not going on vacation because we're going to be debt-free. Yes, you might be divorced also, debt-free and divorced. You've made one thing the only thing, right? And all of a sudden, and here's how it sounds. All I want is, doesn't the Bible talk about the danger of death? Yeah. But it also says the danger of idolatry. You've made one thing the main thing, and it's wreaking havoc on those around you. Mm. Number two, I mean, number three, the reason idolatry is so pervasive is because it's so elusive and flies under the radar. You realize when we touch on this, we talk about this, we're talking about what isn't visible, what isn't obvious. What's obvious is what people are doing and saying. What's not obvious is why. Why? Heart. And so, whew, this has to do with the heart, which means you can struggle to even know your own heart. Did you realize that? You can struggle to know your own heart. The same prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, if you just keep reading through that book, says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is to be trusted more than anything else. Uh, uh, no. The heart is deceitful. You realize your heart lies to you. Your heart can lead you astray. Your heart can trap you. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Good news. Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways. This happens gradually and subtly. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what? I'm going to start living for the approval of my spouse. The rest of life isn't working out. So at the breakfast table, you announced to your husband, now, I do need you to give you a heads up. I need words of affirmation. I need to be cherished, adored, loved. Lots, lots of it, okay? And if not, oh my goodness, I'm gonna get angry. I'm gonna seem edgy. I'm gonna pout. I'm gonna, I'm gonna seem withdrawn. We don't give each other a heads up. We don't wear a sign around our neck, you know, like that dump truck you're following behind, like stay back 50 feet because stuff's gonna start falling out. We just do it. We just shift And everyone has an awareness of, what just happened? This isn't going well. Something happened in the heart. Nobody says, oh, kids, kids, listen, lots riding on you now because life hasn't worked out, but I will be loved through you and I will be a success through you. Your success is my success. A lot is riding on this. Don't be stupid. Don't do anything that breaks my heart. Do not do anything that embarrasses me. We don't say that, but we start to live it. And you just place demands on the people around you. They were not designed. And here's the the killer. We're going to unpack it in a whole other sermon. But 
Do you realize when you're guilty of idolatry that's placing demands on significant relationships around you, you can't actually love them the way, love is giving for the, because you need too much from them. No, I need you. You must. And so you build your whole world around the kids are great. They are. I loved raising kids. But it was never meant to be your whole world, which is why the world comes up with labels like empty nest syndrome, right? The mother lost herself in the parenting years. It was her whole identity. She just can't imagine what she should do now that she's not even cut, cutting crust off little sandwiches and bathing people and packing little lunches. And tell, they're like, I'm lost. You shouldn't be lost. You shouldn't be lost. And news alert, they still text you relentlessly. All my adult daughters just blow it up with my wife. Sometimes on a date I have to say, put it, she's like, it's Kelly. It's always Kelly. Put it down. This is Brad. Hello, Brad, your husband. We're on a date. Could you just give it a rest? What if it's an emergency? It's not. It's never an emergency. The police can find us. Like, just could we have a date? Right? So once a mom, always a mom. Trust me. But oh my goodness, we're not like lost at sea now. We raised five kids and Vicky worked hard and she homeschooled the early years. And oh my goodness, but man, when they launched, so did we. We're like, oh my goodness, I've been waiting for this. We play our music. We ride bikes and no one complains. We eat out. They're like, we never eat out. I know. And now we're eating out left and right because we're just paying for two. Yeah, we're not paying for seven. They used to say, all the other families go out to eat after church. Happy for them. I don't know how they do that. Seven of us would be like a couple hundred dollars. Not going to happen. We've got a crock pot of rice and a crock pot of chicken, and we're going to eat it. And we're going to eat it all week, so don't say you don't do leftovers. <laughs> you do leftovers. Yes, you will do leftovers. It's really good. Mom's not fixing a brand new, fresh from scratch meal every day. Get a life. Oh, he doesn't eat leftovers. In our home, he wouldn't eat. You just wouldn't eat. We'll see how hungry he gets. I bet this will look good after a while, but I digress. Huh. It doesn't matter what you do it with. Work, kids, marriage, health, image. I'm all about trying to be healthy because I feel like it, it helps me have more energy. But, oh, you guys, if you live for image, you'll be so disappointed. It doesn't matter what you snort or drink. Or I drink tons of water. I grind kale in the morning. I go to the gym, but my skin is sagging. My eyes look like my dad. They sag off to the sides. And then I, there's this. I look at myself sideways. I'm like, oh, what is that? And I do this like, that looks so much better. And this used to be normal. Where did this come from? Ah! And I'm like, I'm still doing those twist ab things at the gym. And I do these abs and I do planks every morning for two minutes. But this is sag. It's hard inside. It's a hard sag. If you come up and want to touch it, it's hard. But it's not moving up. It will not go up. It's down now. It's down. My, my, I used to be a 27 waist and it's 33. Hello for this thing right here. It doesn't matter what I do. And if you were living for it, you know, I go back in the gym to change my clothes and all the guys in the 20s are in front of the big mirror going. Oh, oh, oh. And lots of times I'll just go over and say, enjoy that. You know, it's just cut like six little squares. Like that is going to go away. And I hope it goes away sooner rather than later. That's going to go away. That is not like that because you're so amazing. That's like that because you're in your 20s. Ha! 
You can keep doing exactly what you're doing and it will not stay. Well, every now and then I talk to a guy my age like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? And what he tells me he's doing, I don't want to do. He's like, oh, I eat almonds and apples and I don't, okay, never mind. Never mind. I want to eat a baked potato. I want, I want to live. I want to die happy, okay? So who cares about flat abs? I'm going to have some Alfredo, my friend. Like, oh. But here's the deal. Romans chapter one also frames this up, you guys. You'll see it in the New Testament. It's not all an Old Testament thing. Romans chapter one, verse 18 and following frames up this heart condition that we're like, what is going on with us? What is our propensity? Sadly, too many Christians only go there when they want to show again that homosexuality is a sin. I do believe it's a sin. But I do not believe that passage was designed primarily to show that homosexuality is a sin. He actually wanted to say something to all of us, every human being about the heart condition we struggle with in a fallen, broken world. And homosexuality is simply exhibit A of something we're prone to do. When you read that passage, you'll see the word exchange three times. Verse 21, they exchanged the glory of God for something in this created world. I'd rather live for kids, marriage, work, image. Verse 23, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The truth is you gotta have God at the center of your life. He's the fountain of living water. But we think if I dig hard enough and fast enough, and if I get enough of the right stuff, I will be satisfied. That's a lie. Even with people with money and properties and all that they're doing, if you ask them, when will it be enough? The answer is usually just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. It's a lie. And then verse 26, he says, and women have exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Talking about homosexuality. But simply saying we take good things. Is sexuality a good thing? Yes. And we twist it and say, but I'll use it like this. Is work a good thing? So here's what I want you to track with me. So there's people twisting sexuality. Maybe say, I'm not doing that. Can you twist work and say, if it's good, I'll make it my whole life. Now you're a workaholic. Is that good? No. Are kids good? If you build your whole world around it, place your hope there, identity in it, is that good? We twist good things. We're all guilty of it. Here's what you need to realize. When, when idolatry takes place in your heart. It wreaks havoc on two levels. So here's why this is not a side issue. When people pressed Jesus and said, boil it down, we've gotten lost with all those Old Testament commands. What's the the real deal? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Matthew 22, 37, 39. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Do you realize idolatry messes up both? When you're guilty of idolatry, your horizontal relationships begin to heat up, heat up because of the expectations and demands you're placing on people they can't bear. And there's constant friction and confusion and upset between you and other people. And your vertical relationship with God gets pushed into cold storage all the while you're saying, God, I don't understand why I feel distant. It just feels distant and alien. I don't have an intimacy with you. Let me help you. And and then our first go-to is to pray. So we're like, God, I need, and we start to pray that he'll change circumstances and other people. So this is not in your outline, but jot it down, James 4, 3. You ask and do not receive. So I'm saying, God, change her, change him, do this, do that. 
but you're driven by, I've got something else I live for and I need God to help me get it. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong, say it, motives. Let me help you. God is good, so good, but he will not help you chase your idols. He will not assist you in making much of something else at the center of your life. He'll frustrate you. He'll say, I want to talk to you about you. I want to talk to you about your heart. So let's get a working definition of idolatry. I don't have a Bible verse for this, but as you look at the scope and sweep of Genesis to Revelation, I think it's a fair description. I want you to say it with, you, with me. You ready? An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. Say it again. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. It can even be a good thing, you guys. But when you take a good thing and try to make it a God thing, it becomes a really bad thing for you and everyone around you, especially those closest to you that you say you love the most. You realize the people closest to you suffer the most from your idolatry? Some of our struggle in our marriage was that I had made a God out of ministry. I lived for ministry. And you can see how dicey that is because I could easily say, well, glory of God, heaven and hell, kingdom stuff. I can't play Candyland. Lives are at stake. But I worked day and night for Brad Bigney. I was a workaholic that had made the church. I live for this. I'm not supposed to live for this. He's called me to love my wife, lead my family, and yes, be a pastor. But not a pastor who gets lost in the middle of it and the church is my whole identity. So just like a mom can get lost with the kids, a pastor can get lost. And I had to find my way back and repent my way back, which meant I started saying no to some people. Does anybody thank you as a pastor? No, no, you won't pray for our shopping center parking lot thing? No, no, no. I had to start saying no. I never said no. I said yes, 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 yes. And I was about to lose my marriage because I had made something else and it fulfilled me. The more she acted, you know, distant and whatever. The church, you think the church loved me? Oh my goodness, they, no, they did. They're like, oh, you're the best thing since sliced bread. You know, if I'll go 100 hours a week and I'll do everything everyone wants me, they loved me. So the more she didn't love me, the more I went to the church. Like, they love me. There's 600 people that love me. There's just one that hates me. It's my wife, but whatever. The odds are still pretty good here. Whole lot of people like me, girl. A lot of people really, really like me. She's like, I just don't happen to be one of them because I live with you. Woo. Anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. So enough about me. I'm sure that was fun thinking, man, he's a, he's a big, bad sinner. <laughs> Number four, if you dig deep enough, idolatry is almost always the sin beneath the sin. And here's why I want you to get this. Oh, listen, this was a game changer for me. And I think it might be for some of you. Typically, Christians get frustrated because they're so busy whacking at fruit sins in their life. And after a while, you'll get exhausted and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't think I can just do this till Jesus comes. And so then we say, oh well, I guess that's just who I am. And yes, it is who you are. But by the grace of God in you and the word of God, oh, you can change, but you got to go after root sins. So if you are unaware of your heart, you will not fight smart. 
This awareness of idolatry allows you to fight smart and you go after root sins instead of fruit sins. And let me get you excited. Very often when you go after a root sin and begin to repent in that area, a cluster of fruit sins all go down together. It's amazing. But I had to have an awareness of what are the roots. Take anger, for instance. I hope you realize anger is almost always rooted in a sense of entitlement. There's something I deserve and you're not giving it to me. You're in my way. And so I use anger to intimidate you, bully you, make you think, oh, don't ever do that again. Don't get in my way. Anger. And so you can memorize a bunch of do not get angry verses and still not see a change until you you start to realize, but what is my root issue? What am I saying I have to have? Like when we had, you know, when the kids were young, five kids, can you imagine? That's a lot going on and you're gonna have some mess. You're gonna have some disorder. And so I would come home from church. I would drive home from church and ministry is messy. Ministry just seems like it's never finished. There's just so much disorder. Oh, that's hard for a day, babe. That's really hard. I wanna get it all, but you guys just won't stay fixed. It's like, oh, and then someone that was fixed is unfixed, and then a new unfixed person comes like, oh, but I love you. It's my joy to do this till Jesus comes. But I had to change what I was thinking because I was going home, watch this, and placing demands on my home they were not designed to bear to try to make up for what I said. I can't deal with this. I have to have a, right? So it was like, I must have order. I cannot have mess. I cannot have... And so I'd be turning in the driveway and there's a bike in the driveway. God of heaven, help us. You know? And so kids are running out. When they're little, they love you. They're running out the front door. Dad, they had this little song. Daddy, daddy, he's our man. He's our man. Until they see that daddy has the window down. And daddy's yelling, get the bike out of the driveway. And they wheel it around. Ah, daddy, daddy's mad again. You know? And so then once daddy gets in the garage, he's, he's heading up the stairs and on the landing, there's just deep shoes, shoes everywhere. We only have five kids, but there's like 50 shoes here. Why? What is going on? I have a shoe shelf in the garage. I want them paired up on the shelf. That's where your shoes go. And I get to the hall bathroom to wash my face. Towels are on the floor instead of the towel rack. How hard is this? Towels on the rack. Who did this? Throw pillows in the corner of the couch. They're everywhere as if they are throw pillows. They're not, they're decor. And I feel better when they're where they go. Where do the pillows go? Corners of the cat. Now you can imagine how fun I was to live with. But I'm bringing this home, you know, and Vicky was really sweet. She'd lay her hand on my arm. She's like, because I did this in a Christian version. No profanity, no holes punched in the wall, but still just. And she's like, honey, can I see you? Just a minute. I'm in the bedroom. What? Just bedroom, just a minute. And she'd look at me and say, what is wrong? I'm like, nothing. What do you mean what is wrong? I mean, nothing's wrong except that this is a life skill. Dads love to couch what they want as a life skill for the kids, right? (laughs) Instead of saying, I am longing for a false refuge and I've tried to make this my castle. When I arrive, the drawbridge comes down. It's not blocked by bikes. I come shooshing in. I make my way gaily up the stairs. I wash my face with a towel that's not on the floor. And then I posture myself on a couch that has throw pillows this is what I, you know, I didn't say that out loud, but it's just, and you guys, one thing made a huge change. When I sat down, here's what you also have to realize. You will not discover what's going on in your own heart in a hurry in the fast lane. You'll have to slow down. I don't mean you need a day, but 30 minutes and say, God, what's going on with me? 
Show me me. And that's when he showed me I was trying to make up for the disorder and messy of ministry by saying my home has to be, and it doesn't have to be. I can take refuge in Jesus. And I memorized myself a new verse from Proverbs, something like, I don't remember exactly now because they're gone. They've launched. Where the oxen are, there'll be poop. And I just say to myself as I drove home, we have a little oxen. We have a little oxen. When I get there and there's a bike in the driveway, oh, that's a little oxen's bike. Look at the oxen's bike. And there are oxen shoes everywhere. Oh, and oxen knocked the towels out. Because then I would say to myself, new thinking, people pay thousands of dollars to adopt kids and go through this huge process and we just have them. You want to have another kid? Yep, let's do that thing. Boom, kid. Another kid. Want another one? Yeah. Like, we have kids and they will not always be here. And my heart work changed the whole tone of those encounters, right? We tend to think if you'll get all this right, we'll have a better evening. No, if I'll get a hold of my heart and bring a different heart home, we'll have a different evening. Me, me. So enough about me. What about you? What would God put his finger on in your life today? And if you were here in 2012 or yea, verily 2005, don't stop listening New season, new stage of life, maybe a new job. It might be different now. What would God put his finger on with you? Where has there been drift? Where have you been most frustrated? Where have you been saying, all I want is? Where have you been placing demands on relationships around you that they were not designed to bear? Let me give you, and and if you're like, well, I'm no ACBC certified counselor. I'm not a therapist. You don't have to be. Here's all you need, humility and a willingness to pray what I think is a fantastic prayer that God loves to answer. Psalm 139, 23, 24. Search, watch the pronouns. There's six of the right pronouns in this prayer. Look at me. If you'll start praying the right pronouns, you'll start seeing more answers to prayer and have insights about what's going on. Search who? Not get her. Get her, God. Take her to the woodshed. Shake her like a mother cat with a kitty. All right, now, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, see my anxious, what am I anxious about? Because I'm clinging to something, saying I have to have this. See if there be any wickedness in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So I want you to do some homework. Don't expect this to be the magic hour. So this week, I want you to take that trifold workshop, worksheet that's in the bulletin to help you identify idols. Do it. Get quiet with the Lord. Consider pulling the Gospel Treason book off the shelf or get a copy so that you can read Introduction, Chapter 1, Chapter 2, and get more. And then consider downloading the study guide off my website and say, God, I want help. I want to feel more joy and more peace. I want to have better relationships. I want to be more devoted to Jesus. Oh, God, thank you for your saving grace and thank you for your transforming changing grace oh god give us more awareness of our heart and lord give us humility that would say god show me what i'm not seeing about me show me the heart i'm bringing to every encounter with my spouse or my friend or my coworker, or my kids or these circumstances oh god change us on a heart level for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand singing the great hymn as our closing prayer that talks about how our hearts are prone to wander. So Lord, get us by the heart. 
Keep us, help us, 